So there is a context that uh, I'd like to just put before you this morning um, as we read these scriptures together. Uh, this week has been the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, as you know. Um, today is, Re- is Remembrance Sunday, where the nation remembers those that um, have fallen in, in terms of the first two wars. But I, I'd like to focus this morning a little bit on just setting the tone of what I'm going to say by remembering something of the Reformation. And um, uh, over this, my dear friend Martin Luther, uh, he's one of my heroes, this guy. And uh, I, all I want to say to you this morning is um, I'm not trying to whitewash these guys. I'm not trying to say that they were, were, were without fault. Luther had his problems. Calvin had his problems. Zwingli had his problems. They were all imperfect people, but we, they were incredibly brave in terms of what they stood for and what they did. And I think we need to look, in terms of history, we need to look with that kind of perspective. We're not trying to make them into kind of people that they weren't, but we want to honor them for people that they were. And I, I want to kind of uh, land with Luther before we, we, we reach um, Romans this morning. But uh, he, he really was the towering figure of the Reformation. He was kind of the spokesperson. But for hundreds of years before, people had already been sp- speaking out uh, in terms of the Catholic Church and things that they saw were wrong. And so there was a guy called um, Peter Walden who, who lived in the 12th century, the 13th century. And already he was speaking out and saying, actually, there's only one, one authority in our lives. That's the Scripture. There's only one mediator. There's is Jesus. Uh, that was 300 years before Luther even nailed his 95 Theses to the door. Uh, there was a guy called John Hus, who was a Czech uh, man from the Bohemian. Uh, he, he was a Czech. And he also, for many centuries before, had been speaking out about Scripture alone, grace alone. And he stood in his generation against what the Roman Church w- was trying to put onto the people. And then here in the UK, someone like, like uh, Wycliffe. Um, who was a professor at Oxford in the 12th, 13th century. He again was speaking out hundreds of years before. He was called the morning star of the Reformation. Some of his ideas were the things that fed people like Luther. And then Luther came uh, on that fateful day in 1517, nailed these 95 theses to the door, raising some objections in terms of what he saw the Catholic Church was trying to put on the people, and uh, the rest is history. But there really were five things five things that the Reformation stood for, and I want to encourage you that you would root yourself in these five things as we look at uh, Romans chapter 1. The first is this. They're called the five solas, all right? And basically, uh, the academic language of the day was Latin, and so this is why they're in Latin. Sola Scriptura, that just means the Word of God alone. These are what the Reformers stood for, the Word of God alone. Uh, they rediscovered the Word. The, the Word became central. They, re, they redid their buildings so that there was a focus on the Scripture, not just on, on, um, on liturgy and icons and, and those kind of things. They said, no, we've got to get back to the Word. The God has given us the Word. And this was the first thing they stood for, the Scripture alone. I want to ask you, how much in your own life does the Scripture play a role in your life on a daily basis? Secondly, Solo fideo. This is simply means faith alone. So they said, yes, we have God's word alone. By faith we are saved alone, not by works. This was very important because, as you know, Luther was a monk. He had tried for many, many years to earn his salvation. 
the, 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 the Catholic Church had taught, if you, if you show faith and you show humility, God is compelled by the covenant that He has with us. He's compelled to extend grace to us so that we are saved. But you first have to show faith and you first have to show humility. So it was a works-based salvation. Luther says, no, it's by grace alone. It's by faith alone in Jesus. The Word alone, sola scriptura, sola fidea, faith alone. Thirdly, grace alone. We are saved purely as a gift from God. It's His unmerited favor. It's His grace. It's His kindness to us that roots us in this amazing salvation. And so they, they, they had this as one of their values. And then, fourthly, through Christ alone. Solus Christus was the... Was the um, the Latin phrase, through Christ alone. There's no other mediator. We don't need anyone else. We don't need the Pope. We don't need any other authority outside of Jesus and what He's done for us. This is the authority that we need, Christ alone. And if you've been a part of this church for any length of time, you will see that these are the things that we sing about all the time. Faith, grace, God's Word, Jesus. Why? Because we want to root ourselves in these things deeper, more deeply in our lives. These are the things that God brought that have changed His church and transformed his church over the last 500 years. And the last thing was uh, for the glory of God alone. Solo Dio Gloria. For the, for the glory of God alone. That's what we live for. We don't live for ourselves. We live for God's glory. These are the five things that the Reformation put in place. And I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you as we look at Romans chapter 1. How much are these things playing a role in your own life, in your own personal space? How much do you rely on God's Word for yourself? How much are you relying on God's grace in your own life? Are you, are you responding with faith? Is it for God's glory alone or the other things that are seeking the attention of your heart? Okay? So with that in mind, let's have a look now at Romans chapter 1. The title of my message is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And this is um, what Luther, when, when Luther was, was rediscovering these things, what he really was doing was rediscovering Paul. He read Galatians, and he read Romans, and he read the Psalms over and over and over again. And as he read these things, he became convicted of some things in his own life. He came across this phrase, the righteousness of Christ. And because he was trying to earn his salvation, that wasn't good news to him, because he knew that he could never attain the righteousness of Christ through his own effort. And so every time he read about the righteousness of Christ in, in Galatians or Romans or, or Psalms, it overwhelmed him, and it, it was like a separation between him and God. I can never be righteous. That's basically what he got to. And he tried as a monk. He fasted and he prayed, and he, he did all these things that, that um, the monastic lifestyle encouraged. But he couldn't find that sense of peace in himself that he knew that he had the righteousness of Christ. And then one day he's reading Romans, he's reading Galatians, and he, he understands, revelation comes to him. This righteousness is not something that you earn. It's a gift that is given to you because of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. The righteousness of Christ is given to you as a gift, and all you have to do is, you, by faith, you believe in the righteousness of Christ for your life, and you are saved. That is it. It's a gift. Transformed his life. Transformed the church. And so let's read Romans chapter 1, right? Here we go. Verse 8. First, I thank my God through Christ Jesus for all of you, Paul writing to the Roman church, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I might know 
I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I might reap some harvest amongst you as well amongst the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Here we have the gospel in a nutshell. From faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Can you see these five things already in the scripture here? And I wanted to just uh, also turn to Romans 15 quickly. And I'm going to read four verses, verse, verse 18 to 22. It says this, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring to the Gentiles obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around Elycrium I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. Amen? I'm asking God to help me this morning to be succinct and not to go too long. But here we go. If there was only one thing that you could tell people before you died, what would it be? If I had only one thing to say to you this morning and tomorrow I drop dead, what would that thing be? Well, this is the thing that I'd like to, to, to preach this morning. There's one thing I would want to leave with you. It's this simple thing. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. That is the message that we have to proclaim. That I want to put to you is the most important thing you can live for, and it's the only thing I want to preach about this morning. The power of the gospel to transform lives. I am not ashamed of the gospel, says Paul, because it's the power of God for salvation to all who will believe. And so we come to this amazing portion of Romans, written by Paul. And, and Luther called this the purest gospel. He called Paul's, um, Paul's Roman letter the purest gospel. It's the most complete statement of the gospel that we have in the New Testament. And it's probably because Paul never even visited Rome. There was no apostolic leadership in Rome. And remember, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people got saved. It's most likely that some of those people were Romans. They went back to Rome, started a church. And Paul longs to come to these guys to encourage them. And uh, he's writing to them to try to help them understand his view of the gospel before he gets there. And so this letter really contains the clearest thoughts that Paul writes concerning the gospel. And so there are a couple of things I want to pick up, three things I want to pick up this morning out of this portion. Notice, first of all, he says he's hindered in coming to them. Do you notice that? He wanted to be with them for a long time. He had the desire, he had the, 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 the um, energy to get to them, but he was hindered in coming to them. And in chapter 15, the second scripture that we read, we find out why he was hindered. It wasn't that, uh, as he said to the Thessalonian church, Satan had hindered 
him from coming to the Thessalonian church. He simply says, I haven't been able to come to you because I've been preaching the gospel where no one's heard the gospel, and I've been so busy doing that that I haven't had time to get to you. That's what he says. That's what stopped me, my desire for everyone to hear the gospel, people that have not yet heard. So I've been going to all these areas where people have not yet heard of Jesus and preached to them, that's why I haven't come to you. And then he says these amazing words, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And why is that so important? And I might have said these things before, and I want to say them again. Why do you think that's so important that he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Well, it comes down to a very basic question this morning. Why do you think it's important that anyone should be saved? Why do you think it's important that you are a Christian? Why do you think it's important that your family that you've been praying for, why do you think it's important that they might become Christians as well? Well, Paul answers it right here. He says he is absolutely amazingly confident in the power of God to transform people. That's why he preaches. He is absolutely confident that what he says and releases by the power of the Spirit through, the, through faith in Jesus will transform people's lives. And so it's dangerous, the gospel. It's, it's not something that uh, we should take lightly. There's a power in the gospel that when it's released, transforms people's lives. And you see, I'll put it to you, there are people that are ashamed of the gospel. I don't think there are many people preaching the gospel anymore. There are people that are ashamed and embarrassed about some of the things that the gospel says. Uh, there, Paul uses this word stigmata, the stigma of the gospel. And I want to ask you, are you in, in some way this morning, are you perhaps a little bit embarrassed about the gospel? maybe there's some Christians that embarrass you, their behavior. Well, I want to say to you, there's some Christians that I, I'm embarrassed by, by their behavior. Perhaps you're a little bit embarrassed about what the, the Bible says about signs and wonders. Or perhaps you're a little bit embarrassed about what the Bible says about speaking in tongues. If we just take that stuff away, you know, more people would, would be, find it appealing. If we just took all that stuff about miracles, take it away. I mean, of course we know there are no miracles now, right? I mean, we, we're so rational and enlightened. Can't possibly be miracles. And all that stuff about speaking in tongues, let's take that away. I mean, that's so embarrassing for people to come into a meeting and people are speaking in weird tongues. Let's just do away with that. And view on, you know, the traditional, traditional churches, view on sexuality, that's so embarrassing right now. We're more enlightened than that. So let's just take that away. There's so many people that are embarrassed by the gospel. At the end of the day, really embarrassed. A little bit kind of, oh, we can't do with that. We must no, no, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because it was the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Why am I saying these portions are so important? Because Paul really believed this. I want to ask you this morning, do you really believe this? Do you really believe it? It shows us a lot about Paul. Uh, undoubtedly, the, the great heroes of the Old Testament were people like Moses Outside of Jesus in the New Testament, Paul is the greatest hero of the New Testament. Was he a theologian? Yes. A missionary? Absolutely. Was he a pastor? Yes, he was. A church planter? Undeniable. He was brilliant at all of those things, and yet, in his heart, primarily, he was evangelist. He wanted to see people saved. I want to see the power of God transform people. That's what Paul says over and over again. And he had absolute confidence in that. Why did he have absolute confidence in that? Because he saw what it did for his own life. He was a, a Jesus hater. He was a Christian persecutor. He was, went around doing all that he could to make the lives of, of Christians miserable. Threw them in jail, beat them up. Then he meets Jesus. His life was transformed instantaneously 
and he becomes the most important church planter, the most important evangelist, the most important writer of the early church. Don't give up on people that persecute Christians. Don't think that, that they can never get saved. They can get saved. Why do I say that to you? Because the greatest writer of the New Testament was, was like that. A hater of Christians. A persecutor of Christians. Paul had absolute belief in the gospel. Secondly, he had absolute confidence in the gospel. He wanted to go where no one else had been. He wanted to preach the name of Jesus when no, no, no one had preached the name of Jesus before. How many people do you know like that? Well, I've, I'm, I said this in Cambodia. I met, I've met someone like that, Buna. Buna wants to go where no one else has gone. He's not interested in going to places where actually people have heard about Jesus. You know, in the West, it's completely different, isn't it? If you're preaching, you're starting out, you go to a place where people already know about Jesus. And you make sure that you plant a church in an area where there are a lot of Christians so you can have a ministry. Isn't it true? I mean, everyone wants a ministry. Everyone wants to look successful, don't they? I mean, surely this is what it's about. For Paul, it was exactly the opposite. He went where no one had been, where no one had heard, and he paid the price to see Christ preached. It wasn't a comfortable thing for him. He wasn't trying to build on someone else's foundation. He was trying to build on the foundation of Christ in people's lives. Acts 17 we read of Paul in Athens, and uh, he's gone there to meet Silas, who's late. Silas hasn't pitched. And so it says, uh, you know, in the, in the ancient world, Athens had a, a number of amazing things. You might have seen them yourself, the Parthenon, perhaps, you might have seen that. Or Mars Hill, the Oropagus, you might have seen that. The Scripture says Paul doesn't go to those places to debate with the philosophers. That's what, well, that's what people did in those days. If they had any new ideas, they'd go and debate with, with the philosophers. And, and say, or consider these ideas and say, oh, that's very interesting. Oh, th thank you for that idea. Thank you for that contribution. Now, what does Paul do? It says he goes to the marketplace. He goes to the ordinary people. He goes to the marketplace, and he speaks to anyone who will hear about Jesus. <laughs> now, in Cambodia, there are lots of marketplaces. And uh, it was interesting to preach in a, in a situation like that where, um, where there are marketplaces that go, people go and meet every day. I want to encourage you. Speak in the supermarket to anyone who will hear about Jesus. Speak in the school to anyone who will hear about Jesus. You don't have to go to Oxford and Cambridge. Uh, intellectuals sometimes, their hearts are completely closed to the gospel, closed to the good news. People think they're too clever. Jesus, Paul, yeah, no, he goes to the ordinary people. He goes to the marketplace. He goes to anyone who will hear. Will you go to anyone who will hear in your family? Will you just speak lovingly about Christ to people in order that we might see some saved. I think God wants, wants to remind us of all of this. Do we have confidence in the gospel? Are we absolutely unashamed? Do we really believe that gospel, the gospel can transform people? And here's the third reason. I said three things. Here's the third reason. The third reason that this, these portions are so important is because it shows the, the thing that um, motivates Paul, and it's something about the character of God. He's, there's an urgency in his life to preach the gospel. And we, we're celebrating the Reformation, which is we are justified by faith through grace, all this stuff. We're celebrating. Well, Paul really was motivated by that urgency. We've heard this so much. We sing about the grace of God. We sing about um, uh, these things every week. I am not ashamed of the gospel, says Paul, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Should remind you of Abraham. Yep. He was the first one, righteous to live by faith. 
And here Paul, in verse 17, says that. And then he connects it in verse 18, and he says this. He uses a Greek word which connects the two. It's the word God. And he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by unrighteousness suppress the truth. Here is Paul's motivation. At the end of the day, Paul is motivated with an urgency to preach the gospel because of the wrath of God. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is connected with the wrath of God. When is the last time you heard a message preached about the gospel, the love for God so loved the world that He sent His only Son? We all love that part, don't we? Oh yes, Jesus, we love you, we love you. And we don't quote the second half of John 3.16. So that all who believe in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. We don't like that part so much in our community right now, in our culture. Let's speak about the love of God. Let's not speak about God being angry with sin. God is unrelentingly, unforgivingly, uh, he is bent, all of his will is bent against sin. He's not angry with people, he's angry with sin. And I challenge you, I challenge you, if you hold this view of, well, God's not really angry and we just want to see him as a a loving father and he's not really angry with sin, I challenge you, come with me to Cambodia, sit on the the cafe, see these, these guys come and pick up these girls my age and older, see them, and if you don't get angry, I say to you, in your face, the Spirit of God is not in you. It's not. It's impossible not to be angry with that sin. And at the same time, feel compassion for those men. Broken, broken men who would not get a wife any other way except they buy one. They, you look, look at some of these guys, they're complete misfits. You know they don't fit into any community, so they come to Cambodia and they try and buy someone with money and have power over them. Man, if that doesn't make you angry, then I promise you, I say to you, the Spirit of God is not in you. Don't tell me that God is not angry with sin. Of course He is. For the wrath of God, we preach the good news because God does not want anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to have eternal life. Come on. Uh, Aren't you too serious? Just relax a bit. Many people think that the the, the Christian life is about an abundant life. How many churches don't you know that are called abundant life? Do you know what abundant life really means in in our kind of context? It means... I want a nice, easy life. I want a joyful life. I want a life without sickness. I want a life with with wealth. That's what abundant life is for many Western Christians. I put it to you flat in your face today. That is not what motivated Paul. Of course those things are important. Of course God blesses us with those things. But that's not the primary concern for Paul. The primary concern for Paul is our death. He wants people to know God so they have a future with him. It's not about life. Uh, you, you might say, well, and where does that come from in the Scripture? Here, here it comes from the Scripture. If you said to Paul, it was just about this life, and Jesus came just for this life to make your life better, Paul would say, you are absolutely joking. You are out of your mind. Why? Well, I put it to you, and if I'm a little bit <laughs> loud this morning, well, hey, I'm sorry. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in Christ we have hope, In this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul is saying it directly. In in this life, if you're only concerned about this life, your comfort, your healing, your blessing, your money, 
or in this life, you are most to be pitied of all people. Paul says flat out. He would say to us, you must be joking. You think it's all about this life? You must be joking. What else? 1 Corinthians 4, verse 9. Paul writes this to the Corinthian church. I think that God has exhibited us as apostles, the last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle for the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in high honor, but we are in disrepute. To the, this present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed. We are buffeted and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we enjoy. When endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become, and still are, the scum of the world, the refuge of all things. Oh, come on, Paul. It's God wants you to have a nice, cushy life. Don't get so passionate about it, Paul. Now, Paul says, we are the apostles, those that plant churches, those that preach the good news of Jesus. We are like the scum of the world. We are the last in the line. Paul would say, you must be joking if it's just about this life. 2 Corinthians 11. I'm talking like a madman. Paul writing again. With greater labor, far more imprisonments, countless beatings. Anita was telling us she grew up in Sri Lanka. She grew up in a Catholic environment. One of their priests got beaten to death by Buddhists because he was, he was living the good news of Jesus. She knew someone was beaten to death by Buddhist people in Sri Lanka because he was preaching the gospel. Oh, no, God wants him to. It's abundant life for us, and don't talk about that stuff. <laughs> in the Southeast Asia right now, the most persecuted people are Christians. In the Middle East, the most persecuted people are Christians. Come on. Three times I was beaten with rods. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift on the sea. Frequently in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and exposed. And apart from all these things, there's a daily pressure on me, on my anxiety for the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not, am I not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. This is Paul. This is the greatest church planted theologian of the New Testament. This is the one who whose heart was to evangelize where no one else had. He had no comfortable life, was no of any value for him. So what kept him going? This unrelenting desire to see people go to a future with God and not a future without God. He wanted all to hear the wonderful message of the good news of Jesus. That's what he wanted to share the most. I'm aware this is not a comfortable message this morning. I'm aware that, but we've got to hear it. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my great heroes, said this, the church is so middle class, that is why it has so little desire for heaven. He said that in the 50s. It's even more true today. The church is so middle class, so, so consumed with its own personal satisfaction, wealth, comfort, that it's no eternal value. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation of all who believe. You notice Paul didn't say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the, the power of signs and wonders for all who believe. 
Do you notice that? Did Paul believe in the power of healing? Absolutely. He saw it in amazing ways in his ministry. Have we just seen amazing things in our ministry uh, in, in Cambodia? Healing. Absolutely, we've seen healing. But Paul didn't say that the, the gospel is the power for signs and wonders. He said it was the power of God for salvation. Healing, signs and wonders are absolutely wonderful to be celebrated every time they happen. We marvel at them. We thank God for them. There's a flash of eternal glory that comes into our present reality when someone is healed. We see the perfection of eternity that is impacting our lives right now when someone is healed. And we rejoice every time we see that. But I put it to you that healing is temporary. At best, it's temporary. Why? Because we're all going to die one day. Of course we're going to die. A multi-cell body like I have is inexorably decaying. I am going to die one day. I'm closer to death now than I was when I was born. That's an absolute given for all of us. Unless Jesus comes back, you and I are going to die. So even when we see healing, at best it's temporary. Do we celebrate it? Yes, we do, absolutely, with all of our hearts. And now I'm frothing. <laughs> but it's temporary. Paul was consumed with the eternal, the salvation that he wants everyone to enjoy more than healing. Are we ashamed, secretly ashamed? Are we secretly embarrassed about being called born again, happy clappies? Are we, are we secretly embarrassed that we don't speak in tongues in public? I've even known churches that oh, we don't speak in tongues in our public meeting. Why? Because we don't want the visitors to be offended. So we don't speak in tongues. Bleh. Makes me ill. The power of God in our meetings is what we want. Are we so concerned with seeing people, we make it comfortable for people, where we deny the power of the gospel? There's a stigma that all of us have to overcome. All of us have to overcome to see the power of the gospel released. Paul said, Jesus said, Jesus said, if we are ashamed of him, he'll be ashamed of us. He did say that. There's a sense of being compelled from the inside to live out the gospel so we can see many come to Christ. And so... The great question, what I'm trying to say this morning, the great question, do we celebrate healing? Yes, we do. Do we celebrate all this? Yes, we do. But the great question for Paul was, are you going to have a future eternal destiny with Christ? That was the great question for him. That, that, that's what motivated him on an ongoing basis. And so the great question is, that's the same for you and I. And just to quote my wonderful friend, R.T. Kendall, if you were to stand before God, and you will, and remember, have you ever been in a meeting where RT has done this? You stand before God, and you will, and he will ask you, and he might ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And it's a very simple way of saying these things. You can say, well, God, I've lived a good life. Well, that might be true. You might have lived a very good life, but actually, that doesn't save you. Our works don't save us. You might have said, well, I've been baptized. God would say, well, that's good, but that doesn't save you either. All you have to say is, the blood of Jesus is sufficient for me. That's it. I believe because of the blood of Jesus. And, and, and God says, come in. And so what I'm trying to say this morning for all of us, there's a compassion that we have to learn to communicate with 
where we connect those two things. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. We have to connect that with so that all that who believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. We can't have one without the other. The, the two are, are connected. This is, the, this is the motivation for preaching. And uh, you, you know the first, the first, um, the first uh, sermon in the New Testament is actually John the Baptist in Matthew 3. And what does he say? He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's calling people already to Christ. Flee from the coming wrath of God is, is, is some of, uh, of, of the motivation. And some of the translations use that phrase. In the great, great revivals in 1830 in, in America, um, Jonathan Edwards preached a message called uh, Sinners in the Hand of, the ang- of an Angry God. And what he was trying to do was connect these two things. Connect these two things, the motivation of love, but actually that there's, there's, God is angry with sin, and, and he, that needs to be dealt with. I read a book recently where this guy said, we, we can no longer preach about heaven and hell. Uh, if we're preaching about heaven and hell, uh, we're not preaching the gospel. I want to say exactly the opposite. It's not the testimony of Jesus, it's not the testimony of Paul. Unless we are pointing people to an eternal future with Christ, we are not preaching the gospel. Unless we are people, are, we are not warning people about being angry with sin, we, we are not preaching the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed through faith in Jesus for all who believe. That's what Paul says, Romans 3.22. Last little thing. I'm always so comforted. You know, have you ever wondered about... Uh, this thing of faith, because as, as I was growing up as a Christian, there, there can be all these kind of pressures on you as a Christian. You know, you need, you need to have more faith. You ever heard that? Uh, you know, things are not breaking through in your life because you don't have enough faith. You know, you've got to have faith. And so there's this kind of pressure that comes on believers. It's, it's actually, well, uh, I'm lacking somehow in faith. I'm lacking in my quality of faith or, or my, my substance of faith. That's why I'm not seeing breakthrough in my life. Well, that's not what the gospel says. That's not what that's what the New Testament says. Jesus had perfect faith, absolute perfect faith in every way. I am saved not through my imperfect faith, not through my lacking faith, not through my mustard seed faith. I'm not saved through that faith. I am saved through the perfect faith of Jesus. The perfect, infinite faith of Jesus is what has pleased God. And my imperfect tiny, small, little, insignificant faith, I, put, I, 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 I take that little faith and I put it into the, uh, 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 the, the word is ratified. My little, my little imperfect faith is ratified by the perfect faith of Jesus. Are you with me? That's what saves us. You don't have to worry how much faith you have or if you don't have enough faith. Your little insignificant faith however strong that is or however weak that is, that is put into the perfect faith of Christ and that's what pleases God. We are saved by grace through faith, the perfect faith of Christ. It doesn't even matter if you feel righteous or if you don't feel righteous. You are righteous because of your faith in Jesus. Uh, When we were in Cambodia, we had a wonderful evening on Saturday and... um, we, were over, we went up a couple of stories into this hotel. We had drinks on the thing, and we were overlooking the river, and it was absolutely beautiful. Wonderful uh, environment to see. But all around, you could see these guys having, you know, it's lots of drinking going on, lots of guys picking up girls, all this kind of stuff. And um, 
I was with Tads, and I don't embarrass Tads, but we were just chatting, and he said, you know, I, I can say that I'm a new creation. God has completely transformed my, my life. Those things used to motivate me. That's what I used to do. And now, no longer. I am a new person in Christ. And he said this to me. He said, I'm not even motivated like that anymore. That's how you know you're transformed. It's not, you know, God is not just fixing you up. God is making you a completely new person in Christ Jesus. The things that motivated you before don't motivate you anymore. The desires that you had, you don't have them anymore. Why? Because you are a new creation in Christ by faith in Jesus. The perfect faith of Jesus. Your little faith is ratifies the perfect faith of Christ. I want to encourage you this morning. This is what it means to be born again. This is what it means um, to live by faith and put our faith in the perfect faith of Jesus. Lastly, how many of you love that uh, song, Amazing Grace? I love that song. It's a beautiful song, isn't it? What does the second verse say? It says, it was grace that taught my heart to, sorry, fear. It's grace that taught my heart to fear. There is a fear of God that needs to grip us. Not out of punishment, not out of punishment, but there's a fear, there's a fear of God in the sense of, oh God, when I see you, when I see your perfection, when when I see your majesty, I stand in awe of you, that kind of fear. Yes, that's what inspires worship when we are gripped, our hearts are gripped by a fear of God, an awe of God, of his majesty. Is he a good father? Absolutely. But he's also majestic, he's also the king, he's also the ruler of all. It was grace that taught my heart to see God for who he is, to fear God in a way that honors him and lifts him up. That's what this, the, the hymn is talking about. And I, I, I am concerned that there's too much of a lack of healthy fear in the church. We kind of treat God as our kind of mate, you know. Hey, Jesus, you're my mate, man. Forgiven me. It's cool. Yes, it is. But there's a fear of God. There's a reverence. There's an awe that needs to come back and grip our hearts as we consider Him who is perfect. Amen? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. So I want to encourage you, let's not be ashamed of the gospel. Let's be those that with passion and conviction live this out. What can wash away my sin? Who can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. How precious is that blood? These are the things that the reformers live for. Only thing that saves us is the blood of Jesus. Why would God let let us into his heaven? The only thing we need to say is because Jesus died. That's what we need to share with others. With conviction, with passion, with compassion. Using the patience of uh, the sower, sowing the seed. Isn't that, Jesus said, he said, if you understand this parable, you understand all of the kingdom. What is he saying? You sow the seed. You are faithful as a sower. There's different soil that it falls onto. You're not responsible for how it grows. You sow the seed. You'd be a faithful sower. You'd be a faithful fisherman. You fish. God tells you to fish. You do what you do. And God produces the harvest 30, 60, 100 times for those that are in Christ Jesus. God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. That's Paul's motivation. 
That was the motivation of Jesus. Let it be our motivation and I'm and our message. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Amen.